This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. I am so glad that you are listening today as we wrap up 2023 with these final episodes of the year over the next few weeks and a couple of months here. I just wanted to let you know, listener, that I am so grateful that you are listening in. You're in for a huge treat today. We have a great guest, Doug Grotheis. And you know, sometimes these conversations are just as memorable for the content as they are for the circumstances surrounding the creation of them. So just to give you some backstory here, as you're about to listen to this episode, I was sick, which is clear in my voice, sleep deprived. Uh, We had picked up some uh, much loved exchange students the night before in Seattle. And I'd been coughing, I think, woken up around 3am. And then the Wi Fi in the room we were staying in wasn't working. And so I was in uh, this kind of hotel lobby situation. And you can hear uh, some elevator sounds in the back. (laughs) So this was a funny episode in that regard. And today's guest was so gracious. And I loved this conversation. So whether you are a strong believer, who is interested in these conversations, or somebody who's not sure where she is with faith, or somebody who's maybe just asking some questions about new age, or why do we avoid certain things as Christians, or what is it about suffering and God? Any deep, deep question, listen to today's episode. I am guessing that Doug is going to touch on some of the things that you may have been asking or you've heard someone asking before. And he definitely answered some things I didn't even know I was asking. Um, And he uses scripture in such a beautiful way. So I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest. We'll get to that in just a moment. Real quick before we get there, I wanted to direct your attention to a couple of things that I haven't talked about here on the podcast at least not recently. Number one, if you go to findingsomethingreal.com, you're going to notice at the top of the page, there is something that says deep questions. That is a free resource for you. It's a free resource for anyone who's asking questions about faith or who has friends who are asking questions about faith. Maybe you have somebody in your life that you love that has some big questions. And it's a great and helpful resource for, for addressing some of those things. So it's designed to inspire thoughtful conversations. I haven't mentioned it lately here on the podcast. So I wanted to let you know that that's totally free and you can find that at findingsomethingreal.com. Also, looking forward to 2024, we have launched our very first fundraising campaign here for Finding Something Real. And if you go to findingsomethingreal.com and you scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll find a tab that says fundraising. If you are an avid listener to this podcast, and you believe in what we're doing, having conversations about finding something real, restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love and relationship with Jesus Christ, and you find value in what we're doing, I would ask you to please prayerfully consider supporting what we're doing here by helping us raise funds. We are hoping to work with a media company in 2024 to get more content out to a wider audience of young people. We're really excited about that. We've been in talks with some some folks and we 
already have some money that has been pledged to the podcast and to this ministry. So if you want to be a part of that, you can find out more by going to findingsomethingreal.com backslash fundraising or just look for fundraising at the bottom of the page. Thank you so much, friend. Hi, friend. This podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years has benefited from seeing a professional therapist, I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and Faithful Counseling can help. Please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for Finding Something Real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we've been starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. This month, our special co-host is Rachel from Washington State. Rachel asked a lot of big questions, and frankly, we may just have to invite her on for a part two next season because there's a lot these conversations could unpack. But one of the things we talked about was New Age. We talked about some of Rachel's questions regarding that. We talked about Rachel's conversion experience where she came back to Christianity. We talked about um, just some questions she had around suffering and we also talked about Richard Rohr, which I know last week when we talked to Paul Copan on uh, the most recent episode, we talked a little bit about Richard, but we might be talking about him as well today. Uh, some people listening, you may be familiar with Richard Rohr, so you know it doesn't hurt to address some of his influence. Um, so anyway, Rachel couldn't be here today. I actually got a text late last night that said she's moving to a new city. So uh, Rachel, if you're listening to this later, I just want to say thank you for sharing your questions and your story and allowing um, your story to curate the content that we're going to unpack today. So here to answer some of Rachel's questions is a best-selling author, Christian philosopher, apologist, and professor. He's written quite a few books, including books on some of the topics Rachel brought up, including New Age, social justice issues, suffering, and differentiating the essentials of the Christian faith. I loved reading his bio, which says, quote, Dr. Douglas Grotheis. Did I pronounce that right? You got it. Really? Okay. You go, girl. You got a good <laughs> okay, start okay. here. <laughs> Dr. Douglas Grotheis has fire in his bones for the Christian message and many irons in the fire to explain, defend, and apply it. He has been explaining the world to the church and explaining the church to the world for nearly 50 years through his teaching, preaching, writing, mentoring, and general witness. His passion is to take to the streets the truth and significance of the Christian worldview for all of life. To that end, he publishes both academic and popular works, preaches in churches, gives public lectures, engages in debates, and has appeared on hundreds of radio programs and podcasts since 1983. 
I was um, young back then, but some of you probably weren't even born. <laughs> he is known as a knowledgeable, sharp, forceful, but gentle communicator of the Christian message. So excited to have him here, Dr. Douglas Grote-Heiss. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. That sounds pretty good. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was on your website. So. I know. I wrote it, so I hope, <laughs> I, hope I can live up to it. <laughs> I'm sure you can. I've. Yeah, were you on Justin Breyer, Breyerly's podcast? I'm pretty sure I heard you over there. I have been. Yeah, okay. I did a dialogue with a, a liberal uh, theologian. Okay, yeah. yeah. About progressive Christianity. The, the question was, are progressive Christians really Christians? So... Yes, we had to I look at individual thinkers. I think is a guy named Randall Rouser. Yes, and we had a very civil, but I think principled and substantial discussion. I think that was about six or eight months ago. Should be okay. up there on this web page. Yeah, and yeah. Randall Rouser also spoke with Paul Copan, if I'm correct. Oh, right, yeah. it's a small little world. I'm not sure. Could be. I think so because I was just re-listening to that episode today, actually, and I was. Mm. Like, man, and he mentioned you in our conversation. So it's a small world of people who yeah. talk about some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I do want to shout out to Eric Nevins, host of the Christian Podcaster podcast. Uh, he told me I needed to invite you on this podcast, Doug. Great. Um, he spoke very highly of you. Um, I would love to know you've done a lot of work. Tell me about your latest projects and how people can find out more about you after we talk here today. Right. Well, Eric is the one that really apprenticed me into my own podcast, which is called Truth Tribe. That's been up since last November. We do a weekly podcast on apologetics, ethics, social issues, things of that nature. Uh, my most recent book is on comparative religion. It's called World Religion in Seven Sentences. That just came out about two weeks ago with InterVarsity Press. I've taught a class at Denver Seminary for 30 years called religious pluralism, where we look at the religions of the world and compare them to the truth claims of Christianity. So after you've taught something for a long time and you're a writer, you perhaps want to write a book on it. So uh, what I did is take representative sentences from six world religions, as well as an atheist statement, Nietzsche's statement, God is dead, and philosophically analyze them and there's a running apologetic in the book, certainly, because uh, my claim is that the Christian message is objectively true, compellingly rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. So I don't just assume that and say you have to believe it. I'm a philosopher, so I give arguments for that, and I try to be fair to the other religions. I've studied these other religions and interacted with people in other religions for many years. So that's the most recent effort. That's my 19th book. Wow. Did you include Jehovah Witness or Mormon in there? No, I was really dealing with the major world religions as opposed to groups that have splintered off from Christianity. So I deal with uh, Christianity, Judaism, um, Taoism, got to get my fingers out here to count them, <laughs> Hinduism, uh, Islam, and uh, what am I leaving out? Did I say Islam? Yeah. So I've got atheism and six other religions. Okay. And you mentioned Buddhism, a, Buddhism okay. also. Yeah. You mentioned a podcast. Where can people mm -hmm. find that? What's the name of it? Yeah, it's called Truth Tribe. It's at Life Audio. Okay. So you can subscribe to that. The form that I use is I guess you'd say short form uh single speaker essay. I have not yet done interviews. Uh it's very content oriented. It's very low 
special effects. We have a little jazzy music at the beginning because I'm a jazz fan. But we typically go 15 to 25 minutes um, once a week. It usually drops early in the week. Yeah. Okay, I saw that you're a jazz fan, and I love jazz, but only in the fall. Is that... No, that's is there an something... interesting disorder. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if that's common. Is that in the DSM manual somewhere? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I got my my master's in counseling. I don't remember. But I was thinking about this. Like, around fall, I always turn on the jazz music. But does it, it, does it still count as jazz if there's words attached to it? Because I've always thought, like, true jazz, mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no lyrics. But I prefer things like Michael Buble. Is that real jazz? Would you say? Well, it depends. Uh, certainly, the jazz tradition includes vocals. Think of uh, Ella Fitzgerald or Frank Sinatra. Or yeah. Tony Bennett. Uh, my wife and I saw Tony Bennett four years ago in Florida. He was 92 years old. Oh, wow. And he gave a flawless performance. It was just wonderful. Was he with Lady Gaga? Because I've seen some of that. No, but he did two recordings with her, and it turns out that she has a good jazz voice despite all the other silliness of her career you know she kind of sobered up when she (laughs) she was with somebody with the gravitas of tony bennett so i i have one of those recordings yeah okay yeah that's great okay well that makes me feel better because i do like that kind of music all year round Mm -hmm. but still during the fall it's more prevalent in my home anyway that's an aside so Doug, thank you for being here. Tell me about your journey. How did you become, uh, you know, so involved in this kind of work? Yes, well, um, I was born in 1957, so I'm a a baby boomer, if you want to go the generational route. And uh, I was not raised in a devout Christian home. I'd say my parents were God-fearing people. My father had been raised Protestant, my mother Catholic. Uh, they had me baptized as baby, but we didn't have a lot of involvement in the church, but I was taught to believe in God and pray, and I was taught basic Judeo-Christian morality. But I became a teenager in the 70s, so that was part of the counterculture, and I was interested in Eastern religions, like Hinduism and Buddhism. I got interested in that mostly through certain kinds of music, because there were musicians I liked a lot like carlos santana and john mclaughlin who had gurus and i thought well maybe this is the way of life the way of wisdom so then when i went to college in 1975 i took a class on hinduism and buddhism was called i think wisdom of the east something like that and started reading a lot of books on uh, the paranormal and i also got very interested in philosophy and the short version is that During that time, I encountered two Christian women who were at CU Boulder. I was in Greeley, Colorado. Uh, And if you're a self-respecting hippie, you want to get out of Greeley in Colorado and go to Boulder, where it's a lot more interesting. (laughs) But little did I know, God had it lined up that I would talk to these two Christian women who are in the Navigators, and they explained the gospel to me. And I also started reading a Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, who made a big impact on me. And things started to happen that I saw that I was at a fork in the road. It was either Jesus or I didn't know what. So uh, by the grace of God, in June of 1976, in a group of young people, I confessed 
Christ is Lord, and I've never looked back. Mm. So since then, you know, my background coming into the Christian faith was through some intellectual inquiry in terms of being interested in worldviews and philosophy and religion. So after a few months of being a little bit intellectually listless and not knowing how to think as a Christian, I started reading people like Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis and Oz Guinness and James Sire and just got on fire intellectually that Christianity was true and compelling and it's what everybody needs to know. So I really pursued that through my degrees in philosophy and through my books and teaching and writing. Wow. Well, I have a couple of questions to follow up on that. The simple gospel that those women shared with you. Uh, there might be somebody listening right now who is unaware of what that gospel is. Would you mind sharing what the gospel message is, Doug? No, not at all. The, the gospel message is that we are in need of forgiveness from God because we have violated our own conscience. We have violated God's standards, so we are separate from God morally and spiritually, but God in his love and justice came in the person of Christ to uh, live a perfect life and to die on the cross to atone for our sins, to pay the debt that we couldn't pay and to take the punishment that we deserve. And that's really the basis for the famous John 3.16, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. So salvation redemption spiritual liberation doesn't come through good works or mystical experiences it comes through the grace of god shown in christ and we receive it by faith we reckon it to be true that we cannot save ourselves through the works of the law shall no one be justified we can't find god somehow within ourselves as the new age teaches we're made in the image and likeness of god but we've fallen terribly short of god's standards and it's only the goodness and grace of God that can ultimately save us. So that's basically the gospel message. We find that in many different scriptures. Uh, if people want to go into this in more depth, I would read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Beautiful summary of how we are lost and dead in our sin, and that we are saved through the work of Christ. We receive it by faith. It's all through the agency of God. We just lift the empty hands of faith to receive that. And that's what I did. And uh, I've had ups and downs as a Christian, certainly. But there's an old gospel song people may have heard. I won't, don't worry, I won't sing it. I won't even sing any of it. But, <laughs> you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. That's yeah. been my life for the last 47 years. And the deeper I go into studying uh, scripture, bringing the biblical perspective to bear on other religions and social issues. And so on, the more I get into apologetics, the more I just live the human experience. I'm 66 now. Uh, the more convinced and passionate I am for the gospel and the Bible and for Jesus. Mm. I love that. Um, to follow up on that, uh, I don't think you use these words, but Christians use them a lot. And it was something that maybe would come up later in our conversation. So I wanted to bring it up now. Um, sin and repentance. Christians yeah. use that language a lot. What does that have to do with the gospel message? Right. Well, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is a relational idea. We sin against God, who is the lawgiver and judge of the universe. So it's not simply an infraction or breaking a rule. It's actually offending the Lord of the universe. And he's given us moral knowledge through our conscience. Romans 2 teaches that. So when Jesus came after being tempted by the devil and he started preaching, first thing he said was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's in Matthew 4, 17. So repentance, you can say, is the first word of the gospel. It just means to turn away from self and turn toward God in honesty, uh, recognizing what Francis Schaeffer called true moral guilt, not just guilt feelings or low self-esteem, but in some ways I have thought and acted out what is morally wrong against God. And so I'm guilty and I cannot compensate for that guilt through any number of good works or through karma or reincarnation. The only hope is that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's first Timothy two, five. So we repent, uh, not perfectly, but the whole idea is that I am going to embrace Christ as Lord and I am no longer Lord. I cannot save myself. I cannot justify myself. I can only be saved and justified through the work of God in Christ. And we receive that by faith. And it doesn't have to be perfect faith either. You can have uh, questions, doubts, but you know that this is the direction you have to go in because Jesus said that um, he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to God the Father except through him. You mentioned that as you've gotten deeper, you know, you found more and more as you've continued digging through that way. That's, mm-hmm. uh, to summarize in my layman's terms, that's what I'd say. Um, yeah. Emotionally, though, have you gone through seasons of doubt or questions of uh, struggling that way? Oh, definitely. The biggest trial and challenge was when my first wife, Rebecca Merrill Grotheis, became very ill and we found out she had a rare terminal form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia. And Rebecca was a brilliant woman. She wrote two books. She edited all my books up through the first edition of Christian Apologetics. And she started to have mental symptoms. We thought that they were induced by depression. In fact, she was treated for a year for uh, depression mimicking dementia. And then we found out that she had something called primary progressive aphasia. So that was uh, a long, slow, terrible, agonizing loss. I wrote a book about part of our journey called Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. But one event I think might be helpful uh, to show how the life of the mind relates to suffering as a Christian. Becky and I were going out to dinner and she was lamenting her fate. She knew what was happening to her. So. I said, Becky, I know it's horrible, but we have to look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. And one day we'll, there'll be no curse and we'll be together and there'll be no mental problems. And she looked at me and said, but Doug, is it really true? And she had been a Christian her whole life. And I said something that kind of surprised me. I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? She said, yes. 
I said, do you remember that big apologetics book, 750 pages that you edited? And she said, yes. And I said, I assure you that what we believe is true. We have good reason to believe this is true. And she said, yes. Now, that wasn't the end of her struggles by any means. But the intellectual confidence that we had that the Bible is true, that God is there, that Jesus is Lord, that it turns out to be a blessing in the end, in the new heavens and new earth, got us through times of intense frustration, confusion, anger, and all the rest of it. Um, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah, thank you. And by uh, the way, I should say that uh, I've remarried Kathleen, uh, who amazingly was a acquaintance from high school. <laughs> so the Lord uh, has a wonderful new chapter for both of us. Mm. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Uh, it's interesting because um, Rachel did bring up the topic of suffering right. and that question of like, why would a good God allow this? And where does, I think she mentioned Satan, like where does he play into that? And what's the purpose of it? If you would just speak to that a little bit, I know you I'm sure you have resources, mm. as you just mentioned, a book that you've written. But, right. um, yeah, we've talked a lot about that on the podcast and other episodes with mm -hmm. other people. But I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. Well, that's really one of the great and perennial questions of human existence is, first, why is there suffering? And second, how do we live with it and live through it or even triumph over it? Now, the theoretical response is in my big book, Christian Apologetics, I have a chapter called The Problem of Evil. And that book is actually now out in a second edition, came out last year. So that's my my magnum opus, or Becky and I used to call it the magnum opie. We just like to call it the magnum opie. <laughs> How long were you married, Doug? We were married 34 years. Wow. Yeah. And uh, Becky convinced me to write my first book and go to graduate school and uh, she was a tremendous uh, influence in my life. So there's the the big philosophical response, which is hard to summarize. And then there's how do we live with wisdom with God through suffering? So the big theoretical response in a nutshell, if there is a nutshell, is that Christianity is very well supported from science and history and philosophy. We have good reasons to think that what the Bible teaches is true. Therefore, we have reason to think that God has a wise plan for our suffering. So if God created and designed the world and he came in Christ to redeem us, and if he rose from the dead and if he's coming again, then no suffering is ultimately meaningless. However, we don't understand the meaning of a lot of our suffering. We can have a framework of the Christian worldview and have knowledge of God, but within that framework, there are a lot of inexplicable evils, and they have to remain somewhat inexplicable. I couldn't tell you why a brilliant woman who had a literally a genius IQ and was in Mensa and who was smarter than me would lose her mind and die. I can't tell you that. However, I can tell you it's not meaningless and it did not undermine our confidence in the scriptures, the Christian worldview and our, our relationship with the living Christ. It did not because we had worked hard on our beliefs.
for many, many years through teaching, writing, editing, all these things. And another thing about the theoretical side is that every philosophy and religion and worldview has to address evil. And what I argue in my Christian apologetics book is that the other alternative worldviews, religions, and philosophies utterly fail to understand or give meaning to evil. Christianity succeeds, and it really focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ, that his suffering was redemptive. He rose from the dead with many convincing proofs. He ascended to heaven, and the story is not over. He will return to judge the living and the dead. But then there's also the practical side of even if you believe that, how do you live through profound suffering uh, without self-destructing, without losing your mind? And a key element of that biblically is what's called lament. So lament is a way of being in the world where we voice our concerns and our troubles, even our anger, our confusion to God. And we know that God listens and God responds. There are perhaps 60 psalms that are categorized as laments out of the 150 psalms. I get that from Glenn Pemberton's excellent book called Hurting with God, which is a great title, Hurting with God. Jesus gives us the ultimate lament on the cross when he quotes Psalm 22, a psalm of David, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he was atoning for the sins of the world and he cried out in utter agony yet we knew we know that his death had meaning his death provided salvation for those that accept him it brought us back to god through his offering of himself he took our punishment he paid our debt he reconciled us to god and that was vindicated and verified by the resurrection so uh Rebecca had been chronically ill for many years before we found out that she had a terminal form of dementia. So I had been studying lament for quite a while and went very deep into the wisdom literature of the Bible, particularly Ecclesiastes, which is a very misunderstood book, but I think one of the most wise and profound books in the whole Bible, actually. So we really tried to embrace lament and that I think is significant. I think Christians sometimes believe that we have to be optimistic and happy all the time. And that's really not true to scripture because you look at the Psalms and you have David or Psalm 88, Heman the Ezraite, they're really confused and angry. David says things like, how long, O Lord, you're not showing up basically, and it's hard. And why don't you do something? Uh, Psalm 88, is by a figure we don't know much about. His name is Heman the Ezraite. And when you read it, you see that he's chronically ill. He's unhappy. His friends are chronically ill and unhappy, but he's still praying. And the last line of Psalm 88 is translated either, darkness is my closest friend, not too upbeat, or all my friends are in darkness. That's the end of the song. It's one of two psalms that don't resolve into praise or thanksgiving. The other one is Psalm 39. I'm glad they're there because when you're struggling as a caregiver for someone who has dementia, who was literally a genius and brilliant, 
you're not going to go to bed every night praising God and being happy. So I'm glad, I'm grateful to the Lord that we have these psalms of lament. We have the ultimate lament of Jesus that was answered by the resurrection, you know, and the ascension. But we have to realize that it is a fallen, broken world of groaning. Uh, Proverbs, excuse me, uh, Romans 8 says the whole world is groaning into groaning together in travail, awaiting its redemption. And we groan and the Holy Spirit groans. So the Holy Spirit is groaning, the creation is groaning, and we're groaning. That's like a whole lot of groaning going on in this world. But if you're a believer, you're groaning unto the redemption that will come. And also you're hearkening or harking back rather to the events of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection mm -hmm. and his ascension. So mm -hmm. through that, it doesn't take away the anger. It doesn't take away the tears, but it gives you a foundation and a framework and a backbone of meaning, of meaning to get through it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, it reminds me, some of what you shared reminds me of a sermon, maybe a sermon series that I heard Tim Keller give one time where he's mm. talking about Christianity um, having a framework that none of the other worldviews right. does, right. that it allows us to lament and at the same time to hope. Um, he has a book on that. I believe it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Very okay. good book. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, Doug, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, but thank you so much for sharing all of that because I think that's really helpful. And um, yeah, Rachel did have a question about that. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about uh, something that I've noticed, and uh, it also kind of relates to some of Rachel's questions. So um, there seems one of the things that Rachel shared and this was before she came back to Christ. Um, but she said that she would like do this kind of form of poetry where she would take a black marker and like mark off parts of the Bible. She didn't like kind of thing. It was mm. like a form of, um, she said, it's really hard to do. And then you make a whole new poem. And anyway, and I remember thinking, Oh, you know, I got a little check in my spirit when she's talking about that. Mm. But then also the same kind of check in my spirit when I talk to people who, you know, say that they love Jesus and then they're telling me about their crystals and their tarot cards and this kind of thing and actually I'm seeing a lot more young women who are engaging in those kind of mm -hmm. things uh, more recently it seems like there's this deeper interest in uh, the supernatural or you know the spirit world I just was wondering if you would talk a little bit about the new age and about these practices and anyway I I'd love to yeah. have a conversation a little bit about that well, there's a lot to say. I started my career as an author by writing about the New Age movement because I came out of some of those beliefs. I was interested in Hinduism, Buddhism, karma, reincarnation, out-of-the-body travel. In fact, I had a few uh, kind of odd experiences before I became a Christian. So the first thing we need to realize is So did that Rachel, by the way. Yeah, I had one experience where I was reading about out-of-the-body travels, and they said one way to do this is to lay down on your bed and just let yourself go to sleep and think of your consciousness or your mind hovering above your body. So I tried that once, and it happened, and I would look down at myself, and I also had a sense that a friend of mine in the dorm, this was 1976, was talking about me, my friend Dave. So 
I woke up and I went over to Dave and I said, Dave, were you just talking about me? And Dave said, yes, we were. And I, wow, something strange is going on. And I became a Christian not long after that. And I left behind that kind of experimentation because it's dangerous. The scripture is very clear that we should not be involved in anything of what is called the occult or the paranormal. So this is in the category uh, broadly of divination or trying to have supernatural knowledge apart from the living God of the Bible and apart from the Bible. So we have Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, which tells the Israelites that they should not be involved in the pagan practices of the nation that's being displaced. So nothing like sorcery, witchcraft, consulting the dead. Um, and the broad category for much of this is divination, which is the attempt to know something supernaturally. So it's not like studying it out, reading a book, doing a survey, or finding it in the Bible, but it would be in the category of like tarot cards or the I Ching or runes or something like that. And this is absolutely forbidden in scripture because it opens up the door to a counterfeit. You know, a counterfeit is an illicit imitation of the real thing. So Satan and the demons want us to get our knowledge from them and not from God in the Bible. So if you use tarot cards or the I Ching or runes or astrology, you're trying to get secret knowledge in an unauthorized way. And scripture says that there is a God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there are also angels, finite created beings. Some do the will of God. They're unfallen. They're righteous. And some have fallen. And we have indications of that in Jude and Second Peter and maybe a few other passages. And of course, Jesus dealt with demons. So demons are fallen angels. But Paul says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. That's in 2 Corinthians 11, 13, and 14. So you don't want to try to mix Christianity with divination or the occult or astrology. There's no mixture. They're two different worldviews entirely. So God is a personal, infinite God who reveals himself in nature, in scripture, in the person of Jesus. And he gives us truth that can be a standard for evaluation. So we don't need, for, for one thing, we don't need to go into these other directions to find knowledge that God's not giving us somehow, that he's holding out on us. That's what Satan said in the garden. That's what the snake said in the garden. God's holding out on you, you know, do the one thing he told you not to do. So we don't need any of that. And secondly, you open yourself up to deception and oppression and possibly even possession. So we have a hard no here to anything related to the occult, divination, uh, out-of-body travel, psychic phenomena. It's dark. It's bad. And I have a lot of experience with this because I wrote, uh, depending on how you count them up, four books on the New Age movement. And I've had experience with interacting with people over many, many years that have been involved with the occult and have come out of it. 
I mean, I have a good friend uh, named Sharon Beekman who has a ministry. She was involved in the human potential movement and the new age movement, and she was saved out of it. But she picked up a demon in the process. And that demon had to be cast out in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. So this is very real. And demons don't typically show up and say, hello, we're from hell. We'd like you to go to hell with us. I mean, sometimes they do. I'm seeing open, outright Satanism in society today that's pretty pretty bracing, pretty frightening, right? But typically there's a masquerade. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Jesus said that uh, the strategies of Satan are deception. He's the father of lies. So, you know, you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So it looks good. You know, you can have knowledge, you can gain insights into yourself through a tarot card reading, through runes or whatever it is, but it's a lie and it's a lie from hell. And there's no compromise on this one. You just have to say, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. We can't kind of mix and match Christianity with other religions and the occult. There's no mixture there. It's a corruption of Christianity when you try to do that. Yeah, man, I I would love to keep asking you some questions about that. Um, but I want to keep on track with Rachel's questions. Um, mm -hmm. Doug, if uh, I didn't scare you away with all my technical problems uh, this time, I might have to have you back on because I want to pick your brain on some different topics. Sure, I'd that. be happy to. Oh, I'd love to have you on again. Um, next season, we'll get it scheduled. Anyway, um, one thing that Rachel shared, and I... Well, first, before I ask this question, for somebody listening, the idea of New Age, maybe they don't even know what that is. What does New mm -hmm. Age mean? Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon. And if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Well, it can mean a lot of things, but the way I've looked at it over the years is that it's a worldview that uh, says that everything is divine and everything is one, and we are part of this great cosmic oneness. And... The problem with humanity is not sin against God. It's that we don't know how truly great we are. So salvation is found by going within, not by repenting of your sin and turning to Christ as mediator and savior. And it involves a lot of activities relating to transforming your consciousness. So meditation, yoga, human potential exercises, and so on. And associated beliefs would be karma and reincarnation. So if you don't discover the God within in this life, 
you'll have other opportunities in other lives to discover the God within. But the idea of God in the New Age spirituality is not that of a, a personal, infinite moral being, but rather a force, principle, consciousness, vibration, energy, something like that. People talk a lot about finding energy and love energy and connecting with the energies of nature and so on. And that's really a demotion of God, because God is the great I am who I am, a self-conscious, reflective agent, a God who speaks, a God who acts, a God who has standards. And with New Age spirituality, that gets very fuzzy. Uh, it tends to be relativistic. You go with your spiritual intuition as opposed to what God has said in Scripture and so on. So there's a lot to it. I uh, My first book, as I mentioned, was called Unmasking the New Age. Second book was called Confronting the New Age. And interestingly, that first book has been my best-selling book. I was just a pup when it came out. <laughs> 29 <laughs> years old. I didn't even have a master's degree. But it was a book I think people, a lot of people needed because it was a worldview comparison and it had quite a bit of apologetics in there, why we should believe the Christian worldview and not believe the New Age worldview. And the second book followed up on that apologetics theme quite a bit, confronting the New Age. Mm. So it's still out there, despite all my books, it's still out there. We've still got to deal with it. And the real danger of New Age is when it looks Christian. I was going to say. When, uh, <laughs> you know, when people talk about the Christ or the universal Christ, uh, if I can bring him up, Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr's worldview is not biblical. It's not orthodox. It's new age. But he uses the word Christ and refers to the Bible, usually wrongly and out of context. But his basic worldview is that we're already one with God. We just have to find it within. In fact, there's one passage in his book, The Universal Christ, where he says we've never been separate from God. Really? Uh, the prophet Isaiah would disagree with that. Your sins have separated you from God. That's why God the Son came to earth, was to reunite us with himself through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. That's why he came. So this is a big danger when people are basically uh, deceived and hypnotized by Christian words that don't have biblical meaning. So... Walter Martin, who's a big influence on me, the great countercult apologist, in his book, Kingdom of the Cult, said, we have to scale the language barrier. There's a barrier of language. What do we mean by Christ? So in the New Age, Christ means a universal consciousness that we're all one with. We just have to rediscover it. Somehow we forgot we were one with Christ consciousness. Well, biblically, Christ is a title that only applies to one person, Jesus of Nazareth. He was the only Christ who ever was, is, or will be. The uniquely anointed one, Jesus the Christ. It's not a universal state of consciousness we can tap into. I mean, we can come to Christ by faith and know that he loves us and we can love him and have a living, interactive relationship with him. But we're never going to be on his level. He's, he's Lord and we're servants. Yeah. Well, it's very insidious because I've yeah. heard uh, quite a few Christians that I love quote Richard Rohr 
in fact, one of my friends who I'll probably send this episode to just because she's, her and I had a little talk um, this summer about Richard Rohr. I'm like, I stay mm-hmm. clear of him. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but he's, it is seductive. Uh, the way he writes, I, in fact, one of my friends a couple of years ago, she was telling a couple, uh, another friend and I about her most recent book study she was doing with women at her church. And she goes, it just feels a little, I mean, this was really good, but this just feels a little off. And she hands the book over. Well, it was Richard Rohr. Mm-hmm. And um, right. so it, it is very deceptive. It feels there are a lot of Christian elements to it. Mm-hmm. Um and it's cloaked in that. So what would you say, I mean, you just mentioned uh, this, we can be part of this consciousness. That's kind of right. the whole thing. We can look within and find the answers. Yeah. Would that be the big thing? That's that you the would... basic danger. Yeah. And I think about two years ago was when the Christian Research Journal published my review article on his book, The Universal Christ. So if you go to the Christian Research Journal online, and put in my name and put in Richard Rohr, you'll find a very thorough critique of his book, The Universal Christ. And I think I also have a a video online about that. So I can't go into all the details here, but uh, let me use another phrase I've been using for many, many years, and that is that false religions may use the Christian vocabulary, but they don't use the Christian dictionary. Hmm. So. The dictionary is scripture and how terms have been used theologically. So Richard Rohr talks about uh, Jesus and Christ and salvation and the spirit and all of it. But he doesn't have a biblical worldview. He thinks that, as I mentioned, we're already one with God in some way or another. And he also thinks that God works equally through all religions, which is not true, which would undercut the missionary imperative of the church. And but he's uh, in some ways an attractive figure. He's a Catholic monk. He's an older avuncular guy who has a sense of humor. I find him absolutely maddening. But <laughs> some people are very attracted yeah. to his persona. But mm-hmm. I say, let's go from persona to truth. Let's try to discern the reality of what he's saying and the reality of what we're taught by Jesus himself and the scriptures. So I think he's a very big danger in the church, and I'm not afraid to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that it's kind of intoxicating, uh, some of the stuff. In fact, I've noticed people that I love, you know, people I look up to in the faith who've quoted Richard Rohr, and one of them was a pastor that I admire. Mm -hmm. And uh, all these people, you know, they loved the quote, and somebody pointed out, hey, please don't quote Richard Rohr here, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was such a pushback on her. And I didn't have the guts maybe to say something publicly, but I messaged her privately and I said, thank you for doing that. She's like, I can't, um, you know, I can't stand that kind of stuff because it's heretical. But I did want to ask you a question that, um, and I, I want to ask this uh, with respect to Rachel, who isn't here to share more about this. Um, she's very thoughtful and she shared about coming back to Christianity. So real quick backstory, Rachel grew up kind of with one foot in, uh, Christianity and one foot in the world kind of thing. Her parents were split up and it was quite literally like that. 
Um, she ended up rejecting Christianity altogether and dabbled in some things. Um, and then uh, she went to Israel. And f- forgive me, Rachel, if you're listening to this and I get some details mixed up. Um, but she had an experience. Um, so she shared about uh, what she said coming back to Christianity. She said that she was meditating last year and had an encounter with Jesus. She said, Jesus asked her, will you forgive me to forgive him for the way his followers are? He said he loved her. And if I remember correctly, she described it as, as her interjecting, wait a second. She was the one who should be asking for forgiveness. And he said he had nothing to forgive. I want to ask you uh, about spiritual experiences, Doug. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I was recently reading a Christian small group study book, and it said something like, your experience of how God has worked in your life is the greatest witness to the truth, or something like this. And then the book quoted, I think it's 1 Peter 3.15. And here's the thing, the the 1 Peter, 2 Peter, I think it's 1 Peter, um, the apologetics verse. But here's the thing, anyone Mm -hmm. can have a spiritual experience. And it's hard to argue with someone who says, God told me, you know, it's very personal or, you know, as Rachel mentioned, Jesus told me. And sometimes these experiences completely contradict what we read in scripture. So for example, a Mormon who, among a lot of other contradictory beliefs about the Bible says that as humans, we can eventually become as God ourselves, that we could, they could have a genuine experience a burning in the bosom uh, Mm -hmm. that for them confirms their LDS beliefs. Um, how do you respond to personal spiritual experiences like this and what should we consider if or when we have one? Well, I have to go to the apostle John in first John four, where he says, test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. And the test is what do they say about Jesus Christ? Has he come in the flesh or not? And if they deny that he has come in the flesh, they are not from God and they're false prophets. Now, when John says Jesus has come in the flesh, he means biblical view of Jesus or what theology calls Christology. So if you think you're an experience of Jesus and he says, I want you to forgive me, Jesus is sinless and righteous and perfect and our advocate. If Jesus ever sinned, we're going to hell. All right. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous. He has nothing to... Uh, apologize for now you might say we want a lot of explanations and i think when we see the lord face to face he'll explain a lot of things to us that are mysterious to us but he's not going to say i am so sorry for what my followers did for you i didn't disciple them adequately i mean that's just nonsense it's not true it can't be true and every day i have things i have to apologize to the lord for I'm an evangelical Anglican, so every week we pray a confession of faith, and we say, Most merciful God, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. And it goes on. You know, I can say that in good conscience every every week. In fact, I can say that in good conscience every day. (laughs) So... The atoning work of Christ is sufficient to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. But we continue to sin. We continue to struggle. So I cannot imagine the living resurrected Jesus saying that 
to anyone based on the truth of scripture. So we have to mediate our experience through the truth of scripture, not get it the other way around, you know, not take a black marker and redact our Bible to the parts we don't like, because there are a lot of truths that I don't like, which are nevertheless true. And I need to deal with them, not just in the physical world, like, you know, I need to lose 20 pounds or more. That's true. I don't like it, but it's true. But in the spiritual world, there are still areas of my life, even though I'm beloved by God in Christ, there is my life I still need to reform and work on. I wish I could just look in the mirror and say everything's peachy keen, no problem. Uh, but there are unpleasant truths that we have to conform our minds and hearts to. And what worries me is when people create a spirituality based on their desires or their fears and they have no test of objective truth on their experience let me give you an example if we have a minute this was many years ago i was researching my first book unmasking the new age i think it was about 1985 and i was reading a book by a guru and the guru said as you read this book you will realize that i am your master and that I am your teacher, and you will feel in your heart the presence of my spirit as you read this book. Now, at that point, I had been a Christian for about eight or nine years, and guess what? I started to feel something similar to what I would feel when I was worshiping in church. I thought, it's happening to me. I don't think there was one nanosecond when I wondered if Doffrey John was really my guru and not Jesus. I knew immediately this was a counterfeit. This was spiritual warfare. It was an attack. So I prayed. I got another Christian in the house with me to pray. We rebuked Satan. And uh, I might have taken a little time off <laughs> from writing the book. But I got back and wrote the book. But the feeling was very similar to Christian feelings, if you were, that I had previously. But I knew this man was denying the God of the Bible, denying the atoning work of Jesus. He was a false teacher. And I don't care what subjective feelings I had, I knew mentally from Scripture and good reasoning that he was a false teacher. And we need to have that kind of test, test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God, because they're false teachers, false prophets, false angels, false gospels. They're all over the place. You know, Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to destruction. And narrow is the path that leads to life. And he is that path. You know, yeah. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, John 14, 6. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching a Sean McDowell uh, podcast episode not too long ago, and he was talking to someone who has been part of, uh, you know, deliverance stuff out of exorcisms and things. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my gosh, there's so much we don't um, we don't acknowledge, uh, you know, in the spiritual sense. Um right. So, yeah, it's, all of that's really interesting. Again, I could ask you so much on that. I guess one follow-up question on that. Let's say, like in Rachel's instance, you know, she's come back to Christianity, right? And then at the same time, and this will be one of the final questions I ask you, I, I have a couple more, but, you know, she asked if Jesus was the son of God or has he been created like an allegory by time she mentioned, and she talked about a little bit about Richard Rohr and uh, that w whether Jesus is the literal son of God doesn't matter that much to her. I know you have some thoughts on that. We've already talked a little bit about them, 
but why does it matter? And how do we talk with our loved ones who are saying, hey, I believe in Jesus, the allegorical Jesus or, you know, the universal Christ? What, mm-hmm. how do you share the truth of what the Bible actually says in love? Well, the Bible is our best source for the knowledge of Jesus. Uh, the Gospels were written by disciples of Jesus like John and Matthew or uh, Mark was a companion of the Apostle Peter. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Of course, Paul was converted supernaturally by Jesus. So the Bible is the best source for what we know about Jesus. And the biblical teaching is that in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing has been made. Uh, that has been made and then it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth and he has made the father known so i'm basically summarizing john 1 verses 1 through 18. so god has always existed as father son and holy spirit that's the trinity one god in three persons co-equal co-ultimate the second person of the trinity the logos took on a human nature for the sake of our redemption and We have record of his life, his teaching, his miracles, his exorcisms, his death, his resurrection in the New Testament. And he is the one mediator between God and man. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the gate. Uh, All these beautiful I am statements in the book of John. He's an incomparable entity in the universe. And you don't want to get Jesus wrong. The Bible tells us who Jesus is, and it's so profoundly significant that we know intellectually and emotionally and volitionally, if you will, who he is and live in terms of his living reality. Jesus is nobody to play with, baby. I mean, (laughs) Jesus is not somebody to create in your own image, according to your own desires, your own longings. I mean, he's far greater than all that and we know from the great commission in matthew 28 that christ has all authority in heaven and on earth and on the basis of his authority we take the gospel message to the world but we have to have the right jesus because there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world as first john 1 1 through 6 teaches and satan himself masquerades as an angel of light 2 Corinthians 11, 13, and 14. So we can just go endlessly into the person of Jesus. I've written three books about Jesus, and I have two more on the way. (laughs) But you want to get the basic biblical facts down, that he is the second person of the Trinity. He incarnated for the sake of our redemption. He is God and man, the only God-man. He's the Lamb of God provided the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It takes away the sins of the world. And he died for us. He lives for us. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. So we've got to just be spot on, solid on those things. You don't fudge those things. You live within those truths. Because truth is powerful. Truth allows us to align with divine reality. When we know what the truth is about the ultimate issues, the triune God, then we can walk out our lives with integrity and power. But if we start mixing and matching and fudging and uh, saying, well, I, I like this part, I don't like that part, 
then we lose truth. We lose knowledge. We lose divine authorization. And we can become very easily deceived. And then if we are deceived, we become deceivers. Mm. Yeah. What I hear you saying is, read your Bible. <laughs> That's right. Um, but when you read, do read and study and memorize your Bible. But That's when right. you do read it, and you inevitably come across passages that are hard, what encouragement would you give your, I know you're a professor, what encouragement do you give to people when they encounter the things mm -hmm. that are hard that they don't agree with? Maybe, right. you know, I don't know that Rachel's been doing any type of that poetry lately, right? But going back to that black marker, um, how do you avoid doing that, even if it's just in your mind? Sure. Well, commit yourself to Bible study for your life. So attend a church where the Bible is competently taught and preached. Read your Bible regularly. I'm a big advocate of good study Bibles. Uh, the New International Version Study Bible is excellent. You have outlines, notes, maps, charts. Uh, the Reformation Study Bible is very good as well. So you keep studying. And what you do if you find something that's puzzling or difficult is get to work on it. Don't say, oh, I don't like that. The Bible's a big book. It has different types of literature. It was written over about 2,000 years by about 40 different authors. Now there's a unity of teaching and a unity of drama to it, the story. But yes, there are puzzling things. So why not break out a study Bible or ask your pastor or investigate? That's what I've been doing now for 47 years is reading and meditating on and memorizing and teaching and preaching and writing about the Bible. And uh, have I figured out everything in there? No, but I do know the basic plot line and I do know the basic teachings about God and salvation and ethics and the church and so on. So we need knowledge. We need the knowledge of God. Jesus said, if you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31, 32. Good. We don't have time to get into this too much. Again, we're going to have you back on, Daga. If you're willing, Great. we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, real quick, for somebody who maybe their faith, and I'm not saying this of Rachel, but somebody who maybe their faith has been undermined by a TikTok video or mm. these different things that say you can't trust the Bible. The Bible is just like any other book. It was put together by a bunch of men, this kind of thing. Um, what resource would you recommend for people that, especially lay people, <laughs> maybe aren't uh, scholarly inclined, um, that they could pick up and, and start reading about where the Bible comes from and its authority? Yeah, it's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a new edition. It came out many years ago, but Sean McDowell and his son, uh, excuse me, Josh McDowell and his son, Sean, have produced a recent version of that. So you deal with the reliability of the manuscripts. And then also with biblical questions, like do we have contradictions in the Bible? Uh, there's a resource by Gleason Archer called Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. So there are so many resources. You just have to take the time and look into it. Okay. Or good commentaries are helpful if you don't understand a particular verse in the Bible. I often go back to some of the older ones like Matthew Henry or John Calvin but I'll just say as a personal testimony of someone who's been a thinker and a teacher and a writer, 
as a Christian for almost 50 years, that if you look into it and study it out, you can find satisfying answers to most of the deepest questions. Not everything. I still puzzle over things. I wonder about things. But I have a core of conviction that's come out of my life. And not just being an academic, but a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion that the scripture is true and meaningful and pertinent to the whole of life. And we can defend it. And we need to know what we believe and why and not be deceived. Uh, there are so many counterfeits out there that look just enough like the truth or feel good or feel empowering that are not from God. So we've got to rest on the revealed truth of scripture and then internalize that. So we have the word living within us and we're really walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth three times. So the Holy Spirit is not going to lead us into things like Jesus has to apologize to his followers or we have never been separate from God. We're all just right and one with God. It's the spirit of truth. And there's no error in the truth. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, final question. I always ask the same question of all of our guests. Doug, the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Real is an acronym for those things. Restoration, eternity, authenticity, mm. and love. All things that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ. Which of those things stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? I think I'd have a hard time choosing. I don't want to choose. <laughs> I think I want all of them. Well, they all fit together, certainly. I think you have to be a little careful with the authenticity idea because, you know, we can be authentically sinners and authentically jerks. So I think often of what Jesus said. He said, if anyone would be my disciples, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So in many ways, we have to deny our authentic sinful tendencies and proclivities. But I guess the word I would like to use would be honesty. You have to be honest to God and uh, honest with yourself and honest with what Scripture says. I was talking to a, a new friend the other day over the phone, and uh, he said, you know, it's interesting you're talking to me because you don't know me. You're an academic and you have an interest in me. But he said, I feel very comfortable with you because you're so honest. And I said, well, that's about all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nothing if not honest. And and uh, God is honest with us. He tells us the truth. He even tells us the truth we don't want to hear. So we need to be honest with God. We need to, in that sense, right, be authentic. First uh, John 1, if we can confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you know, let's keep short accounts with God. Let's be honest before God and depend on him moment by moment. Be uh Really, in a way, I think we need to be strict with ourselves. We don't want to give ourselves room to lapse into error and become morally lax. That's our culture. Our culture does not have good standards. It doesn't have a strong sense of truth about God or morality or the way to live life. And we need that. We really need to walk closely with the Lord uh, in fellowship with other believers and in an ongoing study and you might say conversation with the scriptures you might notice that when i 
talk on any of these topics, I bring in the scriptures all the time. So I want to have my viewpoints grounded in something objectively true and profound and meaningful. And that's what I found the scriptures to be, because they are living and active words from God, the living God who created the universe. Amen. Doug, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate all of your answers and especially bringing in the Bible. I think that it's really beautiful and meaningful. And um, yeah, thank you. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.